This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Misunderstood. I'm Rachel Yucatel. So I love to bring you guys different topics, different guests, stories that may be of an ordinary person, but that has an extraordinary life or, um, you know, something that you might not see in your everyday, um, you know, feeds that you're looking at in social media. So today, my guest is Laura Loveharden. She has written a book called The Many Lives of Mama Love. Okay, but here's why she's important and why you should be um, maybe paying Picking up this book before I, uh, before today, which is when you're listening to it, but I had her on to discuss the book because the book was so good. But as of today, Oprah has agreed with me. She has picked uh, The Many Lives of Mama Love as her 104th book recommendation in her book club. And what's interesting about this is this is not the first time she has picked one of Laura's books. So, you know, Laura's a good writer. So, this book is about her memoir and it chronicles. Um, her life, she was, you know, this like upscale woman who was married with a bunch of kids that all went to private school, but no one knew she was hiding a very serious addiction. She was stealing from her neighbors. She ends up going to prison, losing everything. And that's when her life turns around. Um, and what happens is she, you know, she ends up surviving behind bars. She starts ghostwriting for people in um, prison and comes out and is given a chance by one person who believed in her did not, uh, you know, decided to overlook her past and did not um, value her based on the stigma of, you know, the fact that she was incarcerated for doing something, you know, um, you know, terrible, um, and gave her a chance. And now she is a literary agent. She is a ghostwriter and she is an author. Um, so, and what's interesting about that is that she has also collaborated with the Dalai Lama, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu and others. So anyways, this story is compelling. It's exciting. It's so interesting. You're going to love to listen to it driving home, um, wherever you're listening to this podcast, but not only that, you're going to want to pick up this book again, it's called the many lives of mama love. I couldn't put it down. I can guarantee you, you won't either. Um, so I'm excited for you to listen to my episode with Laura love Harden. Laura, thank you so much for joining me on Misunderstood. It's such an honor to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. So I'm so excited to let people know about your book and basically about your life because it's such a um, an important story, I would say, such an um, emotional story. And it's you are an example of why I have this podcast. So um, my podcast is about people who have been reduced to a single headline and are on a mission to change their narrative and how important that is, how important, um, you know, exploring the complexities um, of, of how people are portrayed and of human nature and like celebrating second chances. So I think your story encapsulates all of that. And I'm really excited for my listeners to hear all about you. Um, so you're, before we get into like the meat of like where this all comes from, I, I just want to talk about your childhood because you didn't have the easiest of childhoods. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, I, um, it, it's funny because I get asked a lot because I condensed my childhood into a few paragraphs in the book and, and I've gotten some feedback on that as you get, um, and I really wanted to make sure I wasn't blaming my life choices on my childhood. But, you know, over the years, as 
as we learn about childhood trauma and how it affects us later, um, I think that played a big part. But I grew up in a family that had um, was chaotic and violent, and a lot of it I've blocked out and kind of learned about later as an adult, way later, um, mm -hmm. where I had to be sort of a detective in my own life to get the stories. And um, my response to that as a child was just to throw myself into school. You know, like I just wanted to be at school. I just wanted to get attention for my grades. Um, but I grew up in a family that never talked about emotions. Like there was zero language for emotions. Um, and I would say it was marked mostly by just the sense that I was always alone and that I was safer alone. Mm, Which is, yeah. you know, which helped when I was younger, but growing up as an adult, that's not always the best coping strategy. But my big escape from an early age was just books and reading. And that's where I kind of, um, I think that's how I became a writer as I read so much, but, but it wasn't a, it was a trauma response, my initial reading and escape into books. Did you have a favorite book or a favorite um, kind of book? Oh, I loved all the books. Um, I read everything, you know, and I I um, started writing when I was really young, really bad poetry and things like that, like you do in junior high. Um, but I read anything I can get my hands on and everything from, um, you know, I read in first grade, I read Gone with the Wind. It's like 1100 page wow. book twice, you know, like it was just to me, there was, you know, the first line of my book is reading was my first addiction. And that's really what it was. And it was just sort of this desperate escape from my environment into these other worlds and learning about other people and other families and other stories. Yeah. I was going to ask if, if the obsession with it was because you loved the stories and it got you out of your own, or if you liked how the words looked on paper and how they made sense. Like, you know, sometimes people are obsessed with true crime, but some people are obsessed with romance novels, novels because they're aching for that in their own life. Yeah. I mean, not romance when I was younger, you know, like, elementary school, I read a lot of stories of, I grew up in Massachusetts. So I remember reading a lot of stories about girls my age in California, you know, like that was the, the promised land. Um, but it was really just anybody's story, but my own and in right. books make sense, right? People's motivations are clear. There's like an arc, there's happy endings. And so that's really what I kind of clung to. And you, at a young age, you know, learned about grief and loss and addiction very early. You lost both your only siblings to um, drug addiction and to a car accident based yeah. on alcoholism, correct? Yeah. Yes. My my sister died. I was a teenager. She became a, a, a severe alcoholic as a teenager. And again, there was no, it was sort of just a, a point of shame and embarrassment. There was no discussion. Um and, you know, I knew there was chaos around me. My brothers were violent and, you know, would do crazy things. My sister would get brought home by the police. And again, I would just be like hiding in my room reading. Um, mm -hmm. And because no one talked about those things. And again, this was, you know, in the 80s. So no one, there was not language about mental health or addiction or alcoholism or recovery. Um, it was just sort of silence and chaos. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, when I was... 15, um, my father died of a cocaine overdose. He was 44. And that was, you know, as a teenager, um, very traumatic to lose someone that you're close to like that. But also as you go on later in life to understand how an addiction like that can kill someone and how devastating that is when a life is cut short, but how it affects you as the one that remains alive, right? There's right. so much that goes on. How, but you weren't involved in drugs as a teen, were you? It sounded like from your book, it started later in your life. Yeah, I was a, I was a late bloomer and an overachiever all at the same time mm. in that area. Um, no, I really thought I could, you know, my role in the family was to be the good one, right? Like that was my role. And the way that manifested was just like, I was very good at school and I threw all my attention into getting good grades and playing sports and winning awards and, you know, glomming onto other people's families and inserting myself into their lives. Um, and, you know, when my sister died, it was the first experience I had with death. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't really understand, like, how, and probably you can relate. It's like someone is there and then they're gone and life yeah. goes on. Like, I couldn't comprehend it in my own internal world. And I internalized everything. And my family, just to give you, like, this is a perfect example of the family I grew up in they never mentioned her name again. 
Wow. There was no rituals around grief. It was just, and anytime, even as an adult, because I've learned the language of emotions as an adult, when I tried to talk to my mom about my sister, it would just, she would just burst into tears, which effectively shuts down the conversation. So that yeah. was like a really hard thing to go through. And I, I've, uh, I just actually lost my father in the beginning of January. And it was this, um, it was like a really interesting when you think how you've healed and changed. It's only when things happen that you see it. And I was like, oh, we're talking about it. I'm expressing grief. I'm reaching out to people. I'm being messy and it's okay. And it was such a different, um, so easy to see the arc of things looking back, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm very sorry for your, for your Thank you. February is the month of love. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know how in love I am with today's sponsor, OneSkin. Most skincare routines only deliver superficial results, but with OneSkin, you get a scientifically proven treatment that improves the appearance and health of your skin at the cellular level. What's their secret? OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient scientifically pr proven to reduce the buildup of cells that contribute to skin aging, which means with one skin, you are left with healthier, younger looking skin with fewer lines and wrinkles, reduced age spots, and a stronger natural barrier, which is especially important this time of year. Your skin does so much for you. Return the favor with one skin. Believe me, you will not be sorry. For a limited time, our listeners will get an exclusive 15% off their first one skin purchase using the code understood when you check out at oneskin.co that's oneskin.co invest in health and longevity with your skin with one skin so i've been using this now for two months i'm not kidding when i tell you how many people have dm'd me that have used the code and that have gotten products saying that they absolutely love everything about it i love everything about it i now use the body lotion i use the eye cream i use the face cream i actually now use the tinted moisturizer for the sun i think it's spf 30 um i gave for christmas i actually gifted my 78 year old mother um uh, the product, it was the travel pouch and she uses all the product, even the face wash. I use the face wash too, actually. And she keeps asking how she can get more. <laughs> so, um, people are loving this. I I'm not kidding. When I say I get an overwhelming amount of DMS on this product in particular, um, that people absolutely love it. You have to try it. You guys, one skin is more than skincare. It's about skin longevity, targeting the root causes of aging to help you look and feel your best at every age. Get started today with 15% off code using code understood at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co, O-N-E-S-K-I-N.co with code understood. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. It's time to expect more from your skincare routine. Invest in the health of your skin with OneSkin. Um, okay, so your story seems like it really it should be made for TV. It's really crazy. So you somehow get yourself to, you're married, you have four kids. Um, tell me about that suburban cul-de-sac life that you were living there. Yeah. Well, you know, where my addiction started, uh, so I've been married now three times, which kind of makes me an expert, but not. Um, so I, you know, when I went off, when I moved as far away from home as I could to go to college, to go to graduate school, to get a master's degree in creative writing, you know, I was just trying to outrun my past and my family and myself really. And so I, um, got married. Um, I had three boys in four and a half years straight out of graduate school. Wow. And I really wanted to create this family that I didn't have growing up, you know, this, this family that I imagined everybody else in the world had, I imagined everyone else had a normal family. And so that's really when my addiction started. Um, that marriage was falling apart. He was cheating on me. I was trying to pretend everything was okay when it wasn't. And, you know, back then, this is, this is the nineties now, um, opiates were passed out as sample packs everywhere you went. Like you have an earache, here's a Vicodin. You've had a child, here's a bunch of, you know? And so I took one, um, I think I was medicating depression, but again, there's no way I would ever ask for help or say, I think I'm not okay. Um, and the way it reacted in my brain was it lit it up, right? I felt smarter, happier. I could pretend everything was okay, easier. Um, and as that marriage was falling apart, I would take two to feel the same way and three, and you know, that went on and off for a good decade where I knew like, oh, this is a little bit of a problem. 
Um, I was single mom for 10 years. Um, by the end of it, I was taking 60 a day. Wow. 20, you know, 20 for breakfast, 20 for lunch, 20 for dinner, basically. And that is the nature of addiction. I mean, obviously that would kill someone now and, and me. And you could take that much because your tolerance had built up. I mean, you weren't laid out. You were still on no, the No, no, I, I, could, I could be fully functioning. Yeah. You know, and I thought uh, I needed that to feel joy to get through my day. Um, and it was on and off. It wasn't straight through. I knew there, you know, I knew that's, you know, I tried to quit a million times, but I remarried, had my fourth son. Um, we were both, uh, you know, I, I had six years not taking any drugs. I was feeling great, bought a house and a business and, um, ended up, um, my husband started smoking heroin and I, um, ended up trying it for a whole bunch of reasons that, that, um, mostly I just hadn't done the inner work that I needed to do. And, um, and that's when everything fell apart in 11 months from the time I tried that. The thing I swore I would never do, that's why my brother died from a heroin overdose. Right. Right. And I wow. said never in a million years. And, and, you know, all of that running from my own trauma and, and lack of coping and internalizing everything and inability to ask for help and this sort of drive to pretend that I had it all together. And, you know, I was the perfect cul-de-sac soccer mom and I was in the perfect marriage and none of it was true. Um, and that catches up to you, I think. And so uh, those 11 months, uh, the money was gone. I started committing uh, crimes to buy food and gas and groceries and keep up the pretense of the lifestyle because all the money was going to drugs. And but like, let's paint a picture for people that you do so well in your book. I mean, you your kids were going to private school. You were, you know, fully invested in their lives. Um, you were living in a nice house. The next thing you know, you're trying to go to a hotel because your lights are about to be turned off. Can you like kind of get us into the mindset of how you got there and and where we got to where you were actually arrested? Yeah. So over those 11 months of, 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 of the heroin smoking, um, you know, everything started to fall apart. But again, I had six kids in, in private school, you know, Montessori school. And I had two stepchildren at that time. So I had my four boys and two stepchildren. So we were a blended family. Um, I owned a really successful business and everything just started, you know, unraveling. And I, I wanted to, then when you're in that sort of compulsive nature and obsessive nature of addiction, like I knew right from wrong. I knew I wanted to stop, but you're so in that compulsion that it was always like, I'll figure it out tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. Like tomorrow I'll get it together. I just need to like do a little more to feel okay. And then I can change my whole life. And, and I knew I, this is not how I wanted to live. And I, um, you know, the irony is that I thought, there's no way I can tell anyone I need for need help um, because I can never be 30 days. I couldn't go away to rehab for 30 days and be separated from my children. Mm -hmm. The end result of, of the world kind of closing in on me and me being in this, you know, the power's out, um, you know, the, the law enforcement's closing in. Cause I was stealing, you know, my friend's credit cards and use at the grocery store, my neighbor's checks. Um, the end result was the police, um, pounding on the door and coming in and, um, and arresting me. And the only one home at the time was my son, Caden, who was almost about to turn four. My older boys were all in school and my stepchildren were in school. Um, and that was really the beginning of the end and the beginning of the beginning for me, the person yeah. I am now in that moment. And at that point, no one had really tried to do an intervention with you that was a friend of yours. I mean, the first time someone stuck, stepped in was the police, right? Yeah, I did have a friend who came over. You know, when, when you're hiding this secret, you know, you just make up, I made up elaborate lies that I thought were genius, you know? Oh, of course. And I had, you know, and they make no sense now looking back. But I um, I had a friend come over, you know, and I'd gotten very thin. Um, and, you know, uh, she was little concerned. I just had a friend recently who was like, I didn't know you were on drugs. I thought maybe, you know, you were had like a, you know, a terminal disease or something, you know, and I thought I looked great, you know? <laughs> and, um, but she came over and she said, you know, how, how are you, why are you so thin? Um, you know, I'm really worried about you. And my elaborate lie was because books are my thing. I was like, well, I read this book called the secret. 
Mm. And I manifested myself skinny. I thought it was a genius lie. And she was like, "Mm," you know, but there's really nothing you can do for anyone if they don't want to be helped. You know, like I wanted to be helped, but I, again, I couldn't admit that I did not have my shit together, if I can say that. Um, And had anybody caught you? Because I know you said you stole from your neighbors, your friends. Had anyone said, wait a minute, where's my money? Where, you know, had anyone accused you of anything? Yeah, my my closest neighbors, you know, I was like, you know, again, I was having mail sent to their house and I would take their mail. Like none of it made sense, but it was all closing in and, and they knew and I knew that they knew. And so that was all kind of the chaos at the end. And my my ex-husband had been keeping my my older boys you know, he was like, you're not okay. And, and I'm going to have them come to our house. So everything was falling apart in all of the areas. Yeah. So your youngest son who was there gets picked up by child protective services. I was always curious. So did he end up staying with them? Did he get to go with your ex-husband? What happened? Cause your, your current husband at the time was also arrested, right? Yeah. Yeah. We were, we became co-defendants, which is when the romance is over for sure. So, (laughs) so, um, you know, I was, when the police were in the house and I was handcuffed and I was begging them to let me call someone to pick up my son and they wouldn't do that. And so they called child protective services and, you know, despite the chaos I'm describing, he'd never spent a night away from me. He was, um, you know, at that age where they're just very attached in stranger danger and he's scared and crying and I have my hands handcuffed behind my back. So I can't comfort him. I can only tell him like these strangers about to drive you away are friends. And it was just such a traumatic moment for both of us. Um, and so he went into foster, you know, child protective services, put him into emergency foster care. And then luckily my ex-husband and his wife were able to get certified. And for the year that I was incarcerated, we were able to uh, take care of him. Thankfully, great. I'm so grateful for that. Um, and so he was with his brothers, which made it uh, better. But I did also, you know, um, 80% of women in jail are mothers with minor children. And that sometimes the time that CPS court gives you to meet all the requirements to get your child back and mm-hmm. the time of your sentence do not coincide. And that is a right. big issue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about life in prison for a minute. You were there for how long in total? Um, I was there, I was sentenced to a year. And so it was 10 months, which is, uh, I got time off for good behavior. Okay. And you really made the most of it because I feel like this is where your life sort of blossoms or at least begins to show you some signs that maybe you hadn't seen before. What, in what would you say it was for you? What that time was? I think, I mean, initially it was horrible and overall it was horrible. Like I don't recommend it, but it was great for me. And some of us learned things the hard way. Right. Um, but, um, it was interesting to find myself in a place where I'm stripped of every single piece of my identity that made up who I was. I had this carefully constructed identity to the outside world, but I was no longer a mother in there. I was no longer a wife. I was no longer a boss or a worker I wasn't a community member. I wasn't a neighbor. I wasn't a friend. I was alone and just a number. And that was terrifying. And it forced me to rebuild myself into who I really was, you know, from, from the core out. And, and that didn't happen right away. I was terrified at first. I couldn't stop my thoughts. You know, I, um, you know, I just spent, hours rewriting every mistake, you know, replaying every mistake I had done in my whole life. Like, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do this? And, and all my fear for the future. And, you know, there was one book in there. There's not a lot to read in jail. And there was one book, um, the power of now by Eckhart Tolle. And there was one line in that book that, uh, one sentence of how to stop your thoughts. Hmm. And, um, it was, it was, you know, it's simple. You just think in your head, I wonder what my next thought will be. And when you do that, your brain just shuts off. It's just like this magic trick. And so I started, I learned to meditate in jail again, easier ways to do that. Mm-hmm. But I was able to take that little gap, you know, that little like millisecond of, of freedom in my mind and just make it longer and longer. And I think that really uh, saved me. Again, books were saving me. 
Wow. Um, and so you had some education before in, in writing and, and you at this point had figured out that writing was your love, but while you were in your addiction, you were not doing any writing, correct? Correct. I cannot, you know, writing as a, as a child and growing up was how I, how I process the world and how I process my feelings and made meaning and made sense of things. When I was in my addiction and taking opiates, I never wrote, I stopped writing, um, and I had a master's degree in creative writing. I stopped writing, but I started writing again in jail because I was, um, you know, I didn't have drugs in my system. And I started ghostwriting in jail, which is like writing letters for the other women as them to judges. And, you know, I broke up with some boyfriends for them. I seduced some people for them. I got letters so they could go to treatment instead of prison. Um, and I started, um, you know, I started sort of honing those skills, not knowing that that's something I was going to do later in life. Right. So you get out of jail, uh, for early for good behavior and walk us through what happens. How, how does your addiction feel when you walk out of jail? Um, when I walked out of jail, um, I was under the belief that I had like, cause I'm a rule follower despite all the fel felonies. Right. So I like follow the rules in jail. I'm on probation. I think, okay, I'm just going to have to do the things to rebuild my life. I was fighting against this clock to get my son back, right. Mm -hmm. To reunify with Caden. Um, and you know, when I was in jail, I would see women go out and then we'd have a goodbye party. They were full of good intentions. Like I'm going to reconnect with my family or go back to school or never do drugs again. And then they'd be rearrested a week later. And I was like, that's crazy. That's so stupid. Like how, why would you do that? I'm never coming back. But what I didn't realize like all the obstacles that would be put in front of me that have nothing to do with like drugs or committing a crime and how easy it would be to go back to jail. It's impossible to, to get a job. How do you rent a house um, right. with a criminal record. Like there's all of these obstacles. You're having to be in different places to drug test, you know, for probation. So there were so many hurdles and obstacles that I had no idea about in the system and in, in, in bureaucracy and a logic, but then there was all of the stigma and shame that I mm. felt, you mm -hmm. know, you know, when I was sentenced, you know, I had that headline, my face was on the front page of the paper and it said, they're calling me the neighbor from hell. Mm. While I was incarcerated, someone anonymously mailed me all of the online comments to that article. People, strangers saying horrible things about me. And, you know, we can, she should be in prison for life. We could get, you know, like all of these things. And again, I read them over and over again, and I carried them around for years. And so I'd internalized all of this shame and I, and I felt regret and remorse and guilt for the people I hurt in my community, my neighbors who I actually loved and all the collateral collateral damage of my addiction. Mm. Um, but the shame was so sticky and the judgment was so harsh. And I felt very much alone and isolated. And and that's a hard place to be in for people. Had anyone um, been contacting you while you were in prison that whole time that still forgave you, that wanted to be your friend, that understood that you were not that person that had done these things? Or were you really alone when you got out? I was, I was really alone. Yeah. And that's a hard yeah. place to be. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because you talk about, I've heard you talk about, um, you know, you think doing the time in prison is doing the time. And then when you get out, you will have done your time, you'll have paid your dues, and then you'll be able to live an easier life after. Um, but you did not feel that way. I know I've interviewed a lot of people actually that have been um, in jail, even wrongly accused for something and have been let out and they are exonerated and they have the hardest time getting out of prison because there aren't very many options and that stigma, um, you know, doesn't go away. And something you just said that really, you know, shook me for a second is that the stigma and the shame associated with something you've done um, is, is really terrible. I mean, when you go to sleep at night, this is what you hear in your head in the darkness of night on your pillow. And that never goes away unless you feel like you've done your time. And for me, you know, something happened in my past that I had to deal with a lot of shame and regret and remorse and, you know, uh, vitriol from a lot of people coming at me, what they thought of me. And I used to say for many years, I, you know, 
it's not like I murdered someone, you know, and, but the hate that people have is so terrible. And I wish I was able to go to prison for something and do my time and get out of it to let people know I've done my time and it's over. Now you can forgive me. And I don't have that, you know, it, it was a very mm-hmm. weird thing, but listening to you, it's very interesting. Cause even when you've done your time, people still look at you a certain way. So how did you move to that next point where you felt like that, that was um, that someone was giving you a chance. I know you finally, um, you know, filled out a, a Craigslist application, something from app, uh, Craigslist that you read and you met that person that actually believed in you. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so, it's so interesting that you, it's really hard. I think only by like kind of owning your story and healing your own shame, do you escape that? Cause people are never going to, there's always going to be people who want you to pay forever, mm. you know, for anything. But, um, I answered, you know, it was about two years post jail, you know, and I was living in a 400 square foot apartment. I'd gotten my son back desperately trying to rebuild my life and just coming up with these obstacles, um, and ways in which I thought like, I, I, there were times when I was like, I would feel safer in jail, which was like mm. a mind boggling thing to feel. Yeah. Um, but I answered a Craigslist ad for a part-time assistant at a literary agency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't know if I was going to be murdered. It seemed like a very weird ad and it was very extensive, you know, all these questions for a five to 10 hour a week. Um, but and but I just met- on this, as a sidebar, you felt confident in that ability that you were like, oh, I could try out for this because I'm a good writer. You you felt confident about, about something, right? Yeah, I felt, um, one, I'm a great assistant. Two, I have, you know, a background in writing and reading and literature, you know, before jail. The problem is, is often like before that, that thing that you do that the world doesn't like you for everything good you've done before that doesn't count. Right. Yeah. It is just that, that thing there. Yeah. So, um, I answered the ad and, um, and so I got the job working for a literary agency. Um, and the man didn't ask me about my background. I had like a don't ask, don't tell policy. Like if you ask me, I will tell you, but I'm not going to volunteer it because yeah. of that quick judgment that people have. So I started working for a literary agency, um, you know, as a part-time assistant, um, and I was there for 12 years. So when I ended, I was CEO. So there's, that's a, a whole 12 year gap in there. But, you know, it was amazing because I was working in the world of books and nonfiction books and with amazing authors. We were Archbishop Desmond Tutu's literary agency. And so I was um, the person who hired me quickly realized that I I was able to write. And so I started collaborative writing on a lot of the books that we were uh, representing through that agency. And working with these amazing authors and world leaders and spiritual leaders and very non-judgy people and scientists and Stanford professors. But the whole time for a decade, I was keeping my secret. Now, the person who hired me found out a few weeks, Googled me a few weeks after he had hired me and um, and, and freaked out and sent me home for the day to think about it. Because, you know, it's not the first thing that people are going to think of when we when they meet me, right? Because we all have our biases or who's, who are people in jail or who are people who are criminal. They look like or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, and so he sent me home and I think that was like the hard, he said, come back tomorrow. Let me think about this. I never called any references. Like he was just kind of realizing, um, but he had also just, oh, wait, called maybe me. I made a mistake and trusting. Yeah. Him. And, yeah. and he had just called me brilliant a few days before. So like, I I left there and I was like, I'm never going back. Like I was mortified. Like my dream job is over. Um, So I was desperate to prove I was valuable and worthy again. Mm. And I was like, I can't go back there. Like I'll never, I couldn't face him, you know, but I did go back and I said, you know, I'm really sorry I put you in this position. And I hope you know that I didn't lie to you. And I'm just as brilliant today as I was yesterday before you found this out. And he, he, uh, said that he needs to walk his talk, right? And so he gave me the job. You know, I kept the job. And, you know, I find that like people rise, people who have lost everything or um, have been at rock bottom, like everyone I know has been in that place. They will rise to the level in which someone believes in them mm-hmm. every single time, you know? And because I was so desperate to prove I was good, more good than bad, and that I was, uh, worthy and a value, I could contribute value to the world. You know, I worked 
really, really hard for a long time to prove that. And, um, but I was keeping a secret the whole time. Right. And at this point, did you have your children back? Were you dating? Were you getting remarried? Where were you personally? Um, I was, um, I had Kate and I'd gotten back and kind of out of the system. Um, my oldest son, you know, he was a senior in high school when I was arrested. So he was off at college. I, you know, I had my, um, my older boys in my life every day. It took me a long time to get out of a 400 square foot place so that I could have a place for them to be there. I mean, they'd still, all of us would stay there with their huge boys. Um, and that was a source of shame too. You know, I was like, oh, it's going to take me so long to have the, this home for all my children. Um, that I took for granted before I was arrested, right? Like those sort of everyday things. But um, so yeah, they were in my lives. I, you know, it's hard to date when you're keeping a secret and like, you know, I'm all the red flags in dating at that time. Like one, uh, you know, I've I've been married twice. I have four children. I um I'm probation. I can't leave the county, so there's no romantic weekends. Um, I have, you know, I've been convicted of 32 felonies. Like, you know, I wasn't like oh my God. You know, um, but I would have dated me. I was great. But uh, yeah, so I wasn't. But the thing is, is I was so in so much shame that I was just like not in a, you know, I was just kind of hiding from the world. Um, I did, you know, I did meet um, someone um, in that time. um, And and he said to me, I. I know who you are now. I would never Google. I lived in fear of anyone Googling me. Like, I don't, you know, he knew the story, but he didn't like, I would never Google you. Like I care about who you are today. Um, and, you know, slowly over time, I started getting a, a community um, of people and friends in my life that I could um, tell my secret to. And that was right. what ultimately is super healing. Right. And you knew at that point because they knew you and trusted you that they wouldn't walk away. But I, I know that, I know that shame and I know that fear that people are going to Google you and say, Oh, I don't want any part of this. Or, you know, where they just associate with you with that one choice or, you know, group of choices, you know, and think that you're never going to change. And something I wanted to go back to for a second is that you, you know, when you were arrested, um, you actually tried to kill yourself because you thought that it was over. And, and you're mentioning now, which reminded me about it, about and being in this 400 square foot apart foot apartment, how uphill of a battle you felt like you had. And in prison, you know, you were at the point where you were like, I'm never getting out of this. I'm never seeing my kids again. I can't do this time. I can't get over this addiction. And then here you are now for people that are struggling or have been in that place. Like, can you just talk about that? Um, Cause I think it's so important for people to know you just have to make it to the next day. You just got to take that yeah. step forward. Yeah. Especially when you feel like everyone's given up on you. I mean, that's just the worst. And, and, and really the thing that happened is when, when I was arrested and I was brought into the jail, you know, I was crying the whole time. Like where, where, where have you guys taken my son? Is he okay? What's going to happen to him? Where is he? And the, the sheriff's deputy, when he's bringing me into the, into the jail, the County jail, he stopped kind of in between in the, in the hallway between two doors. And he said to me, you should not be anyone's mother. You will never see your son again. And I believed him. You know, I believed both of those things to be true in that moment. And that's really what led me a few nights later where I was like, I have just failed at life. Like I've imploded my life. There is no redemption arc. There is no second chance. And I don't deserve one. Mm. And, you know, it was the darkest place I'd ever been in. And, you know, like luckily through, you know, some divine or whatever intervention, you know, something miraculous, you know, I didn't end up killing myself and I was never in that dark place again. I found out my son was where he was. And, you know, I still didn't believe that I had um, much of a spark to get through every day. And I didn't know what was going to happen in the future. I didn't know if I was going to go to prison for and never see my children until they were, you know, in their thirties or something, you know, like I didn't know. Um, but sometimes in that place, like if I know I'm not going to end my life, right. So I'm going to like be taking these steps. Sometimes all I could do is like, look forward to looking back on this. That was my first thing. Like, yeah. it's not even, I'm going to get to the other side. Cause that sounds like a lot of work too. Or, or even like through the next minute, but it was like, 
I can look forward to someday looking back on this from wherever I am there. And that's kind of like what I had to do. And then just like kind of take it day by day, step by step, like both in jail and when I got out of jail. And, you know, I I have a strong uh, a strong drive and, and a strong work ethic. And, and I really was just like, I'm going to, um, I'm going to succeed. You know, like yeah. I was like, I will get, I will rebuild my life as, and, and get my children back. And, you know, I thought I would do it alone, but it, over time, you know, more people that came into my life uh, to do it with me. And that was, you know, you know, ultimately going to jail made me a better mother, a, a, certainly a better writer, a better uh, human. It made me uh, develop my empathy and my compassion. Um, and then I got to work with all these amazing authors and you just absorb things from them. And so um, yeah, it was a long journey. I wish, um, you know, I hadn't wasted 10 years in shame because I wasn't present for a lot of amazing things mm-hmm. that were happening in in my work or experiences I was having. And, you know, it's like you're not completely present if you're doing drugs, but you're also not completely present if you're in shame and afraid, not letting people close to you or just like kind of keeping this wall up. And that's how I was for a really long time. Right. Or if you don't believe in your own worth and you just hide yeah. yourself. I mean, what's interesting about you is you never, I don't see you as someone who ever struggled with finding their purpose, which a lot of people struggle with that. Per- finding purpose is terribly hard for someone who's lost and doesn't know what they're good at and doesn't know what makes them happy. But you obviously could find your purpose, but for you, it sounds like it was really hard to trust or find worth in yourself. And then finding that one person that believed in you, regardless of if you begged them to or not. And you very much, that's a turning point in your story. Um, And it's something that really shows how important it is to have support. Some people get it unconditionally from their parents. Some people have it from friends or a spouse, but some people don't have it. I didn't grow up with a family that gave it to me. I've had a very hard time trusting anyone is in my life for the right reasons and finding people that, um, I can trust that we'll always be there no matter what. And it's kept me in a very recluse kind of state in my life. And it's only been recently that I found that I need to overcome my own issues with considering myself like a discount version of myself really and moving forward. Um, Can we talk about some of the fun things though that you got to do? I mean, I know you got to meet Oprah, you got to, you know, do all these fun things. Give us a couple of your highlights um, that you're proud of. Yeah. Well, I think when I'm proud, I mean, I got to work on this book called The Book of Joy um, as part of the team, my agency. And so I got to go to Dharamsala, India and um, work on that book with Archbishop Desmond Tutu and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. You know, I was on probation at the time. I wasn't sure they're going to let me in the country. I was just, you know, and again, keeping that secret. But, you know, I was in jail and then I was in the Dalai Lama's private residence because he invited us to join him on his meditation, you know, like his morning meditation and he's fixing my hair in a photo shoot. And so it was like these amazing things. And I, a book that I uh, co-wrote with a man who was on death row, Anthony Ray Hinton for 30 years as an innocent man uh, called the sun does shine. Oprah picked um, his book as her book club pick. So I got to have lunch with Oprah. And, you know, once those pictures got out, it's, it's funny how all the people who didn't visit me in jail suddenly wanted to go to lunch. Right. You know, oh, a little bit of that like, too. Calling, like their old friends. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, cause I was now Oprah good or Brian Stevenson good or Dalai Lama, you know, like I was good adjacent, you know, and part of right. it was, um, so, but there were amazing experiences, like crazy things that I could have imagined in that dark night, uh, in jail when I thought my life, I had felt so much that my life was just over. And I think that is the thing is like, we never know what's possible and the, you know, and everything changes all the time, yeah. good yeah. and bad. And so, but it's hard when you're in that dark place or you're in survival mode, post jail is just in survival mode. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, you know, how much creativity and wonder and awe and joy do you feel when you're trying to survive every day or pay the rent or get food or, you know, all the things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something I, I came across while doing research for you was your Ted talk, which by the way, was 
unbelievable. Um, and it really puts into perspective, you know, people need to stop living um, in the feeling that they are the worst thing that they did. And that is still a part of them. I absolutely, I felt like that could have come out of my mouth. It was so um, important yeah. to me. I loved how you had everybody sit for a second in the room quiet and think of the worst thing they did. And, you know, imagine what, that that was what they had to be Googled about, you know, yeah. um, and I, that resonates with me and, um, and how hard it is to walk away from that shame though, because you feel like it's your identity um, yeah. because other people have created that identity for you and how important it is to create your own na narration of your own story and not live in the, what happened. I thought it was genius. Anyone that hasn't watched it, you should definitely Google it and listen to it because it's, um, it's Thank really Thank you. Yeah. Doing that. Um, I wasn't going to do that. The woman who organized it had asked me for about five years TEDx. Mm -hmm. And I said, no. And then she finally, a few days before that came into my office and said, I'm not leaving till you say yes. Stayed <laughs> for almost four hours. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And part of me really wanted to, because I was tired of living in fear of people seeing that headline that I was a neighbor from hell, you know, like that was my big thing, that headline. And so the feeling of getting up there, trying to explain what shame felt like, which was that exercise and saying, yes, this is a part of my story. It's not the whole story. This is like who I was in this season of my life. It is not who I am. It wasn't who I was before. It's not who I am after. Mm -hmm. And the feeling I felt after that was such a feeling of lightness mm -hmm. and freedom. And it was better than any drug I've ever taken that feeling. Yeah. And, you know? and it's, it's so relatable. That's why I think it comes across so well. You know what I mean? That everyone can, you don't have to be famous or someone important or be extraordinary to have an extraordinary story to, to move on to. And everyone has done something that they feel shameful yeah. about. And that yeah. makes it okay to realize you can let that go, you know? Yeah. And um, ultimately I found out like, apart from maybe a couple, because I don't, I want to be honest, but it, in general, no one was judging me as much as I was judging myself. No right. one was um, as unforgiving of me as I was of myself. And no one yeah. was, you know, all of those things. And so that was really the work. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think, you know, I've heard you talk about this too. It's important. Some people try and wish away something that happened in their past. And, you know, I think it's incredibly important to realize, but it happened and it's okay that it happened and it's got you on the road to where you are now. And so to wish it away doesn't make sense. It's more no. to embrace it, to tell that story, to tell what you learned from that story. And even, you know, what it was like to go through it. It's, you know, it's not glorifying it, but it, it, it allows you to, to move past it. And I think it's important to, you know, to, to own it as part of who, who you were to got you to who you are. Yeah. 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 I think that is, that is the thing, you know, yeah. just own it and say, yeah, I went to jail. I used to be like, oh my God, I can't answer, you know, right. I just say that, that is something that happened to me. It is not yeah. me. Yeah. Something I did, you know, and I made mistakes. I, I, you know, I should have gone to jail, but I shouldn't have punished myself for so long right. afterwards. Right. Um, where are you at with your addiction now? So I am in March uh, 18th of this year will be 15 years drug free. Wow. Mm -hmm. wow. And, and is it something that is always in the back of your mind or it's something that you is not in your everyday thoughts? It's not in my everyday thoughts. Um, and the reason, you know, I think part of it is like addiction's a symptom, right? It was like, to me, it was a way to get something that I was looking for in life that wasn't drugs. It was like, I wanted connection. I wanted um, a way to express myself. You know, I wanted to numb pain. And so really I have all these other ways of getting connected and feeling joy and, um, and externalizing my feelings instead of internalizing them. So it's just not a coping strategy for me. And also like, there's no part of me that thinks, um, things weren't bad enough for me. Yeah. Right. Also, what, what's your relationship like with your children now? Um, it is wonderful. My youngest is at UC San Diego, just started college there. And um, and my two of my older boys are engaged, getting married this year and, and just bought a house like 10 minutes for me, my oldest son. And so I talk to them and see them every day. I mean, they're, they're, uh, except for Caden, who's in college, they're, they're all three graduated from college and they're, uh, twenties and, and 30, one's 30. 
Um, and it's wonderful. They turned out amazing, compassionate, smart. I'm totally biased, but they're amazing <laughs> humans, you know? And, you know, I was, I was at a book event once and there was like the only man in the, in the library audience. And he raised his hand with a question and he said, how did you get your children to want to be with you again and love you again? And I was like, they never stopped loving me. They never didn't want to be with me. They wanted me to be better, healthier, and okay. And I did the work to do that. But it's just such an interesting, I mean, my boys are, you know, I never wanted to be their college essay topic. You know, no parent does, <laughs> no mother does, but they turned out well. And, and they're like, my story is part of their resilience story. You know, mm -hmm. I wish it wasn't that, but that's what it is. I can't wish away the past, like you just said. So um, they're amazing humans and I'm super proud of them. And, you know, when I took Caden to college at UC San Diego, there was a moment um, because statistically he was more likely, anyone who's in foster care for any period of time is more likely to go to jail or prison than college. Mm. So that is the statistics. And so, um, you know, and he, he had a 4.0 GPA and, and, um, we, he got into UC San Diego and I was there. My, my older boys were helping move him into the dorm. And there was a moment when I went to park the car, um, and I was by myself on his moving day. And I just had this moment where I thought, wow, this could have gone so differently for both of us. Yeah. And I'm super proud of him, all my boys. But in that moment was the first time, even with all these, you know, like I got some bestsellers on the walls and all the achievements. It was the first moment in you know in fifteen years where I was so proud of me, right, right. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, right. you know. And I don't think we take enough time, like when we're trying to prove ourselves good, to celebrate the things we accomplish. I know yeah. I certainly never do. Yeah, have. and it's so interesting what you just said because I feel like life is a series of sliding doors. Like you make a choice, and something could have gone a different way because you chose something else. It's like you know, yeah. choose your own adventure story. Yeah. I always read when I was little, but, um, and how life can turn out completely different just from different decisions, um, and always can turn out different based on your decisions. It's a never ending yeah. cycle with that. Yeah. Um, what did your children think of your book? Um, I was, um, I had them all read it before it went into production, you know, where it was get harder to change things. Um, Caden read it. It's about a year ago and I was mostly nervous for him. You know, he's senior in high school. And he he read it. He was in his room reading it. And I kept going in to check on him. Then he locked me out. And uh, he's like, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Let me read it. And he read the whole thing in six hours. And he came in the next morning to my office. And he said, I'm ready to talk about it. And I said, OK. And he goes, I didn't know any of that. Like, he knew his year away. Like, he knew the story of it. And he has some memories of that. And, and obviously knew our life since. But, you know, I never had access to my mother's interior world growing up. Right. Right. You know, like, and, and this is, you know, the book has got, it's graphic in places. It's, and, um, and he loved, like, he loved it. He's like, I couldn't stop reading. I was like, good. You know, that is, and he's not a big reader. Um, and then my oldest son read it and he, um, I was worried most about him reading it too, because he's a very sort of analytical thinker. And he was in, a senior in high school when this happened. And he said, mom, I've always felt close to you, but now I feel even closer to you. So they're super supportive. They've come to book events with me. They're at book launch. And, um, you know, they think I'm kind of badass. So you're cool. That's awesome. They think I'm cool. Yeah. <laughs> or, their, or their friends do. So that, you know, bleeds onto them. So, um, but yeah, they're just been super supportive. And I think it helped them understand some of the decisions and yeah. bad choices I make a little better. And what's your status? Were you ever able to find uh, a, a love of your life? Well, I did get remarried for a third time, and um, and that is not the love of my life. We actually oh. just split up this year. No, twenty twenty four is coming hot, but I'll just say it. You know, it's. I think I've grown and ch I grew and changed so much in thirteen years, and sometimes I mean, there's there's no bad whatever, but I think I just changed in a way where this is not the right relationship for me and I'm not the right person for him. And right. so here I am once again. So 
all new chapters in life. All so now there's going to be another one. Yeah. And what's interesting is like, I've, you know, I've gone through hard things in my life in the, you could read it in the book, but you know, this 2024 came in hot with like a series of hard things. And what was different is like, I just, I didn't internalize any of it. I didn't worry about my look good. You know, if I was worried about my look good, I would have just answered that question. Yes, I have the love of my life. We're happily ever after. And the reality is messier. And I've let like my community of friends that I've developed, like support me. And like, I'm like, you know, freaking out some days and I'm okay with that. And they, yeah. you know, I, I give people the gift of being there for me, like I am for them. And, and so it makes everything easier. Yeah. You know? And that's when you're like, oh, I actually have done some healing. You know, it's only when you get tested. Do you, re- do you revert to old patterns or is it the new stuff is stuck? So, so right. that's been the gift of hard things this year is just knowing that I, I handle things way differently than I used to. Right. Um, any updates on the book being developed for TV? Um, it was optioned to be a TV series um, by um, Scott Budnick and this his company, One Community. Um, and he did uh, he did all the Hangover movies and he did Just Mercy. So, oh. um, so yeah, it's being developed. There's a great showrunner attached to it and it hasn't been sold to... Uh, streaming yet, but that should happen fairly soon, hopefully. Amazing. Who? Any ideas on who you would cast? Um, I have no ideas yet. And well, is um, there like someone you would love to play you? Um, so it'd be a younger me. I mean, another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I don't know. I don't know. Really? Say, but yeah, someone younger and cuter. Yeah. Um, no, it's going to be like a dark comedy too. Cause I know it sounds heavy, the book, but there is lots of humor in it. And that is, is kind of my, um, my joy. I like to laugh and be playful. Um, right. Maybe like a Reese Witherspoon. She could yeah. be funny yeah. and dark at the same time. Yeah. I think something like that would be amazing. Okay. Uh, all right. Last question. As a literary agent, what do you think makes a good story? I think what makes a good story is um, one that you can't put down, first of all, Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's good writing. But what makes a good story is when people who have no similarities to your experience, like they have never climbed Mount Everest or done the things, but that there's enough universals. This is for a memoir, right? Mm -hmm. There's enough universals in there that they see themselves in your story. Hmm. Right. And, you know, the reason I do as an agent, um, I do nonfiction. I do a lot of memoir because there's no other way to be so close into someone else's consciousness and decision making. You know, Hmm. if I'm uh, reading a book in the I voice, I am that person. So there's no other medium. There's no video where I can learn about someone or read about someone. I am them making their choices for good or bad, living their life, feeling what they feel. And I think that is the best way to hack empathy in the world. And I think that there's a lot of ordinary people with extraordinary stories and a lot of voices to be heard. And so a good story is one that has like the, the universals in it where, where, um, people can see themselves in you. Yeah. In your story. Yeah. And so tell people what you're doing now. Um, so I am doing my day job as a literary agent. I have a lot of authors I'm working with. Um, and helping a few authors launch their books this year. Um, and, and are you are you still ghostwriting? I'm trying not to ghostwrite anymore. Um, you know, I've written 13 books as other people and one book as myself. And so I think um, I try not to, except for when I can't say no. You know, there's someone's story or something that I just feel like I can, I can do a great job. Um, so I say that I say no 99.99% of the time, but I leave a little wiggle room for something that I can't say no to, or I feel so passionately about, you know, all the books I do have some, uh, they're impact driven, even though 
they're entertaining. You know, the books I do, I want to create a better world and my lane is books. That's what I do. Good rearranging letters on the page, you know? Um, so I'm working, I'm starting to write fiction again, which is what I went to graduate school. So I'm working on a novel and, you know, I might do some film and TV writing. Like, I don't know. I feel like, um, in many ways, even though I'm, um, not the youngest person, I'm just getting started. And I always like to have creative goals and what can I do next? That's kind of what keeps me going every day. So I love that. And a good underdog story is always, I love an underdog. I do. I will always, always want to, um, champion the underdog. Like I was championed. Yeah. I agree. Um, all right. The many lives of mama love is out now. You guys can find that. Where can they find it? Amazon, anywhere, anywhere, Amazon bookstores, audible. And if, and if they want to look more, uh, look up more about you where just tell us where we can find you. Um, my Instagram at Lara love Harden, even though my boys hate I'm on Instagram, but I am. And then my agency is called true literary. Amazing. Lara, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating and review. You can support the show by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Do you have ideas for the show or want to reach out? Email us at info misunderstood podcast at gmail.com. That's spelled M-I-S-S understood. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time. Misunderstood.